You're listening to the Diplomats Asia Geopolitics Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Putz, recording from Maryland. And this is Ankit Panda from Washington, D.C. So Ankit just returned from the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore, which we're going to dive right into discussing who was there, what was said. But first, welcome back to Washington, Ankit. How, how is the jet lag treating you? Thanks, Katie. Uh, as I'm sure none of our listeners will be su- surprised, uh, I have gotten quite rusty at tolerating jet lag, and the trip to Singapore is actually pretty difficult from the East Coast. So I'm doing okay, hanging in there. Uh, but yeah, uh, definitely doing this podcast, probably a little bit more jet lag than I would like to be for anyways. I, I think that's just going to enhance the uh, the conversation. So, well, you know, the, the, the Shangri-La Dialogue is billed as Asia's preeminent security forum. It's usually held annually, but but as you, you noted, it's been a while since you've gotten to do this. Hasn't been held since 2019 due to the pandemic. Um, you know, so that means there's plenty of accumulated issues and security issues in Asia to discuss. Going into the dialogue, I know many of us were watching with anticipation uh, a pair of dueling speeches by top U.S. and Chinese defense officials. The opening keynote was delivered by the Japanese prime minister, uh, and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky also appeared in a a video address. Um, But I want to start, Ankit, with uh, Japanese prime minister Kishida's keynote. You know, what did he convey about his administration's view on security in the region and in Japan's role in regional security? And, and did this provide sort of a framing for the rest of the uh, dialogue? Sure. Yeah, uh, it was it was terrific to hear from Prime Minister Kishida. It was a terrific opportunity for him, uh, given that Japan is undertaking uh, a national security strategy review right now that's going to manifest in a new set of national defense program guidelines and, of course, the new uh, NSS document itself. Uh, so he talked a bit about Japan's thinking about regional security issues. I mean, the theme of his speech was that I think the world is a lot more dangerous of a place uh, today than it was in 2019 when the Shangri-La Dialogue last convened, uh, not just because of a global pandemic and rising geopolitical tensions, but of course the war in Ukraine uh, and and the violations of of Ukraine's sovereignty by Russia. And so I think the banner idea that Kishida delivered during his keynote that sort of colored the rest of the the dialogue, which is exactly the purpose of a keynote speech, uh, was the notion that Ukraine today could be East Asia tomorrow. Uh, He specifically used that framing in his speech, and that, I think, was a topic of discussion on the sidelines uh, in, in, in some other speeches as well. We heard, of course, from many of the defense ministers around the region uh, about how the conflict in Ukraine, which, uh, you know, some defense ministers were frank that at, when the war started, it seemed very distant from Southeast Asia. But now with the follow on effects on energy security, food security uh, and so forth, uh, that, you know, this is a globalized conflict. Uh, we live we still live in a globalized world, despite the the deglobalization trend. And so that was significant. Uh, the other thing that really jumped out to me uh, that I uh, you know, noted on Twitter um, during the keynote was uh, Prime Minister Kishida's emphasis on nuclear issues, uh, which is really, uh, you know, unusual. Uh, the Shangri-La Dialogue is not where one goes to discuss nuclear issues traditionally. It's very focused on conventional military issues. But of course, uh, the nuclear threat environment around Japan has gotten a lot more dire. Kishida actually, the first time he mentioned China by name in his speech, it was alongside the United States, and he called on the U.S. and China to engage in arms control, clearly expressing concern mm-hmm. about China's nuclear buildup, which was something that uh, we also came back to with the Chinese defense minister. So I thought all of that was interesting. Uh, and it was really, I think, a a, a great keynote uh, to kick off the three days of dialogue. And, and let me just say, Katie, I mean, um, I think the Shangri-La dialogue really demonstrated the value of the in-person format. I mean, there were 
tremendous numbers of bilateral meetings on the side. Uh, obviously, uh, great for you know non-governmental people like me to catch up with friends and colleagues from around the region and around the world. Uh, but really, I think you know after after um, more than two years of Zoom, I think everybody was very glad to have a chance to uh, engage in in-person uh, discussions and dialogue. Yeah, so um, actually, that's a it's a great point to make. Uh, I want to turn to the U.S.-China relationship. You know, the the speeches by U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Chinese Defense Minister Wang Feihe um, ostensibly set out, you know, their competing visions for security in the Indo-Pacific or the Asia-Pacific, whichever nomenclature you prefer. You know, I, I want to get, you know, what are your impressions of those two speeches? And then, you know, what is your impression of the meeting um, that they did ho hold on the, the sidelines of the dialogue? Um, as you said, you know, the the Shangri-La dialogue is not just uh, these these panels and speeches, but but an awful lot of uh, minister to minister uh, contact on the sidelines. Uh, you know, it is it is a track one forum primarily. Um, so, you know, I'm curious what your impression of uh, the U.S.-China relationship within the context of Shangri-La. Yeah, I mean, so the sequencing of events goes. You know, the bilateral happened first, uh, and then uh, as is tradition. Uh, uh, you know, the Shangri-La dialogue lasts for three days. It opens on the Friday evening with the keynote. And then uh, Saturday morning, the U.S. Defense Secretary always speaks. And then Sunday morning, the Chinese Defense Minister speaks. And so that's the sequencing. Um, so the bilateral happened. Uh, it was reported on. There were readouts that went out, uh, focused traditionally, again, from the United States on guardrails and risk reduction. Uh, the PRC side, of course, uh, laid down the law on things like China's view of Taiwan and Taiwan Strait issues. We saw some interesting reporting uh, from a few reporters that were there, uh, including uh, Peter Martin at Bloomberg, who reported on the fact that China has apparently conveyed to the United States that it doesn't consider the Taiwan Strait to be international waters anymore. And so I think we're we're slowly seeing, you know, many of the tensions in um, around Taiwan continue to simmer up. Uh, the U.S. expressed concerns about um, Chinese uh, activities uh, in the region. Of course, uh, we talked about the the remarkably dangerous conduct by a Chinese uh, J-16 pilot in vicinity of an Australian P-8A surveillance aircraft in the South China Sea, where the pilot released a chaff that, that was apparently ingested by the engines of the P-8 that could have gone horribly wrong and resulted in, in probably the worst disaster uh, in the airspace above the South China Sea since the 2001 uh, Hainan incident uh, between the U.S. and China. Uh, so the guardrails issue, I think, was, was pretty prominent. Uh, and then getting to the speeches... Um, Look, I mean, I think you know there were, f you know, I think there were a few surprises on both sides. Uh, the Shangri-La dialogue is is an opportunity for both sides to lay out their visions for regional security. Uh, Secretary Austin's speech was was long. It was detailed. It sort of talked about all of what the United States is doing in the Indo-Pacific, uh, which uh, is is traditionally a focus uh, of the Secretary of Defense's speech in the region. Uh, there was an emphasis, of course, on this idea that the U.S. is not asking countries in the region to choose, which I think is an important message for the U.S. to be delivering in Southeast Asia. Whether or not countries were convinced is another matter, uh, but Secretary Austin certainly made that a component of his speech. Um, Wei Feng-Ho's speech, I think, uh, drew more headlines uh, for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, I mean, you know, I think every time the Chinese Secretary, um, or sorry, the Chinese Defense Minister goes to Shangri-La, uh, he's speaking for two audiences. He's speaking, of course, for uh, the global audience, the global media, the delegates at Shangri-La, and then for the internal uh, audience in China. And so here, I think Wei Feng-he, again, focused quite a bit on Taiwan, on 
what uh, China perceives as U.S. encroachment on its core interests. Uh, he directly threatened that China would be willing to fight a war to the end over over the Taiwan issue, which he described as his, uh, as his China's longstanding policy as a strictly internal issue. Uh, and I think in terms of tone, it was a much darker tone. It was it was received as such, I think, in the region. And then the only other thing to add is that you know what was interesting to hear from some of the Southeast Asian delegates was the commonalities that they perceived between the U.S. and China. I mean, both both sides tried to present themselves as benign. And I found that interesting uh, because I think I think that's something that maybe some Americans still miss, which is that in Southeast Asia, particularly among the unaligned um, or the less aligned countries, there is still a perception that uh, or at least a desire for the U.S. and China to really just, uh, you know, quiet down and ignore this great power competition. But I think, unfortunately, like it or not, this is here to stay. I mean, this was a common theme between 2019 and and 2022, the U.S. and China really using the dialogue to portray mutually incompatible visions in some ways for for regional security. Hmm. So do you do you think I just want to stick on this for one moment longer? Um, I was talking to our editor in chief, Shannon Tiazzi, earlier today about the, the speeches. And one of the things she pointed out to me is Wei's speech only mentioned the uh, Global Security Initiative, which was something that President Xi Jinping had brought up earlier in the year and has popped up in a few things without really being fully defined as a security initiative. Wei didn't really talk about it. And so it was interesting that a speech that's sort of advertised as, as China's vision for security in the region kind of left out what looks like it might be a security initiative. Do, do you do you read that as significant or it's just something that wasn't included or is that because that smacks too much of like an effort to form a block when the message uh, that, that China is trying to put forward is, you know, we're also not trying to make everyone pick sides, but yeah. also pick our side. So the global security initiative thing is interesting. Uh, I'm not sure people really have a grasp on what it is. All we know is that Xi Jinping thinks it's important and it's some kind of banner Chinese initiative for security announced at the BOA Forum for Asia. And she has sort of used the BOA Forum to deliver messages like this to the region in the past, including about the sort of um, docile intentions of the Belt and Road Initiative uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. So I think Wei Feng He isn't probably the right conduit and the Shangri-La Dialogue probably isn't the right forum to offer more clarity on that. Mm. Uh, we heard, you know, Wei repeated, uh, you know, comments like, you know, China has never encroached another inch on another country's territory. And in the Q&A session, you know, he got a question about, well, what about India in 2020? Uh, and a <laughs> Vietnamese delegate asked him about, of course, the Sino-Vietnamese War, to which he had a very condescending answer that frankly did not make him uh, look very good, in my opinion, even in the eyes of many of the Southeast Asians present. Um, and so I think, you know, there's a, 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 there's still several questions about, you know, what exactly China's vision for the region is. I mean, that was, I believe, the title of Wei's keynote was China's vision for regional order or something like that. And and he didn't really, you know, he, he explained in very clear terms what China was against. Um, but I think I think when he was talking about what China was for in the region, it really came off as sort of platitudinal or, 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 or rather mm -hmm. nonspecific. The other thing I want to point out while we're still talking about Wei Feng He's speech was that uh, there was a very interesting question asked uh, by by Alistair Gale at the Wall Street Journal, who was actually sitting next to me at the dialogue, um, about uh, China's nuclear arsenal. And uh, Wei Feng He, of course, before he became defense minister, was the last head of the Second Artillery Corps, which is uh, which is the the part of the PLA that operates China's ground forces. After 2015, that became the PLA Rocket Force. And so uh, Wei Feng He knows a lot about these issues, and he actually sort of relished in this question and, and answered it. In 
in an interesting way. Uh, he did not deny the fact that China was modernizing and potentially even expanding its nuclear force, as the U.S. addressed. Uh, and so in the context of his statements about, you know, fighting to the end over Taiwan, I think it raised concerns. Again, I think, you know, nuclear weapons this year at Shangri-La were a much bigger theme than than anybody had really anticipated, certainly than I had uh, anticipated going in. Um, yeah, well, good thing they invited you then, you know. <laughs> Uh, so I, I think before we, we close out, I want to go back to Ukraine. You know, if someone had suggested several years ago that the Ukrainian president would be addressing Shangri-La dialogue, I'd, been, I'd have been a little skeptical. Um, but, you know, since the Russian invasion four months ago and the ongoing conflict, I think it's really dovetailed with existing, you know, big picture security questions in Asia. Um, some of those were highlighted by the Japanese prime minister. Um, so it wasn't a surprise to see him. Um, I mean, after all, he's Zelensky's spoken at everything from the UN Security Council to the Grammys. So why not Shangri-La also? You know, how was Zelensky's speech received in Singapore and, and by Asian, the Asian security community more broadly? Because I, I think you certainly see U.S. allies a, a bit more strong uh, against Russia and, and about the importance of the, the Ukraine issue. Uh, and then in a lot of Southeast Asian countries, a little bit more hesitant to be forward with, with the issue. It's much more distant for them. Um, and, and it's sort of a competing uh, uh, agenda item. So, you know, how was that speech received? And, and what was your your interpretation of, of you know, what uh, what its implications were? I think it was received very well. Uh, you know, I mean, after Zelensky spoke, I think there was, you know, 30 seconds of uh, continuous applause in the room. The room was fully packed with delegates. Uh, so there was a great in a degree of interest to hear what the what the Ukrainian president had to say. Uh, it, it was a live stream from Ukraine, and he actually engaged in a Q&A with the audience as well, which I was a little surprised by. I thought it might be a recording or that he might just mm -hmm. speak and then and then depart. But no, he actually engaged with the dialogue as, as all defense ministers and even the prime minister of Japan did. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it, it, it was very good to see um his message i think was you know predictable which was you know he of course criticized russia's war and emphasized why the you know why the conflict in ukraine should matter to the rest of the world why it should matter to asia what ukraine needs from the rest of the world uh, and the fact that of course the dialogue was taking place in singapore made this a particularly poignant moment because singapore of course uh, sanctioned russia quite early on and the singaporean government has a principled position on this which is that for a small country like singapore that very much depends on a rules-based international order to secure its interests the violation of ukraine's sovereignty is something that's just simply un um, intolerable and i think that was a view that was shared by many you know southeast asian states uh, even even delegates from countries who haven't formally sanctioned Russia or continue to do business with Russia. And then uh, this was the first Shangri-La dialogue where the Russians were explicitly disinvited, uh, given uh, given the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, and so I think um, the the response to the speech was good. I think I think in general, uh, Ukraine pervaded many of the speeches uh, at, at the dialogue. Uh, we also had participation from uh, several European countries uh, who have been increasingly uh, visible at the Shangri-La dialogue who, uh, you know, made the point, uh, and, and there was a whole panel on this, that that European and Asian security cannot be thought of as two separate theaters anymore, that this is all really interlinked. Uh, and I think that plays into sort of broader concerns uh, in the West about a broader alignment between Russia and China, so to speak, uh, and, and how that might manifest uh, both in Asia uh, and in Europe. And so, you know, that was sort of my uh, the biggest takeaway uh, that I had from um, from, you know, the Zelensky speech and, and the overall implication of of, uh, um, you know, the Ukraine conflict at, at the Shangri-La dialogue. 
Uh, the other thing that came up was, you know, food insecurity and the very practical sort of second order effects of the conflict on Southeast Asia. Mm. And so that, you know, I think was was welcome to see sort of this recognition from regional defense ministers that a war in Europe, while perhaps distant at first, very much has global consequences and, and sort of what that means for how the region should be uh, thinking about security. I'm, I'm glad that you you brought the that panel up uh, regarding sort of the intertwined nature of European security and Asian security. I think we like to sort of uh, wall off the regions as if they don't interact, but but they really do. And, and obviously administrations around the world have to order their priorities, but but these are all on the list. Um, is there anything else, you know, from the dialogue that you think maybe didn't get as much attention as maybe it should have uh, the, any topics that came up that that struck you as as worthy of greater focus. Well, so let me let me talk actually a bit about an omission that I found interesting, which is North Korea. Um, right. I talked mm. about I talked about nuclear issues coming up a lot of the dialogue, but I didn't mean North Korea because North Korea was very much, I think, not an issue. And this is you know somewhat remarkable because it's the busiest year of missile testing in North Korean history is 2022. Uh, and, and North Korea was very prominent in 2017 and 2018 when sort of, you know, they were they were crossing major qualitative thresholds. It was really only Japanese Defense Minister Nobuo Kishi and, and South Korean Defense Minister Lee Jong-sup that that focused in, on North Korea in any detail. Uh, the other ministers that mentioned North Korea, it was sort of, you know, perfunctory, you know, we want denuclearization, we're going to enforce sanctions, very kind of baseline. Um, but I found that interesting. I think it sort of speaks to a level of Korea fatigue maybe setting in in the region where the Korean Peninsula security situation really matters to South Korea and Japan, but it matters less to the other countries. Secretary Austin in his speech, too, I think really just focused on, on North Korea for a paragraph or two. It was very much kind of predictable. Um, there was no panel on North Korea this year or or on the Korean Peninsula per se, which, of course, you know, as somebody that focuses on Korea, I perhaps zeroed <laughs> in on more than I should have. But it did really seem like a notable change. Um, the other issues that I think, uh, you know, didn't really come up a lot or at least, you know, didn't really bubble to the top of the dialogue are sort of direct Southeast Asian security issues. There was a lot of focus on Myanmar, uh, which I think is unsurprising since that is, I think, one of the major regional developments since the, the, the dialogue last uh, conversion 2019, sort of the internal situation in Myanmar and what regional diplomacy can do to hopefully um, realize uh, an end to the many internal conflicts and to uh, hopefully reserve, um, reverse the outcomes uh, of, of the coup there. Um, uh, but, you know, maritime security, the South China Sea, these issues, you know, are always perennial topics at the uh, at the Shangri-La dialogue. But again, their prominence this year, uh, at least at least to me, seemed a little bit more um, more limited, which I think speaks to the broader focus on on U.S.-China competition and the implications of that for the region. I mean, that was really, I think, the overhang uh, over this dialogue. Uh, and of course, the pandemic, I think, uh, received uh, an unsurprising level of, of attention in many of the speeches as well. Uh, you know, many of the, um, you know, both Secretary Austin and Wei Feng He emphasized uh, their vaccine uh, diplomacy of the U.S. and China, respectively, and sort of uh, what each country was doing to contribute uh, to public goods uh, in, in in the area of public health. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much. I think we're going to leave it there today, unless you have anything else you want to add. Well, the only other thing is, you know, it was uh, it was great to run into uh, many listeners of the podcast at the Shangri-La Dialogue, which uh, is is uh, is always always a treat. Uh, and it was just, you know, good to be at the Dialogue. And so for, for all the listeners who sort of reached out uh, at the Dialogue in person, uh, thank you. And if you, of course, have suggestions for, for me and Katie, you should just uh, contact us. We're very happy to take that into consideration as we plan future episodes. 
Yes. All right. And uh, as always, I'll just say uh, in Anka's usual place, thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you liked what you heard on the show, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. If you haven't done this yet, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help new listeners find us. And finally, please reach out to Anka or I with your suggestions for future episodes and any uh, feedback to improve the podcast. Uh, I do want to just take a moment to personally thank the listeners who pointed out some audio issues that I was experiencing the last couple of episodes. Hopefully we'll have resolved those this time around, but I, I really do appreciate feedback. So don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, we are listening uh, and uh, thanks for listening to us and we'll be back with more soon.